All right, guys, welcome back to another episode of The Creative Genius. Uh, we are here with uh, Adam this week, and we have a guest who is visiting. Darren, you want to say just a quick hello, and we'll, uh, we'll introduce you to the, the show and everybody in a, in a couple minutes here. But you want to go give a quick hello? Hey, guys, thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. So I uh, want to just intro this week and just say that uh, Jim is uh, dealing with finals, which, as we said last week, is the fuck, I never actually learned this shit. So he's uh, studying his brains out right now. Uh, but he should be back next week. So uh, just hang tight. He'll be back. Um, but moving right along, Darren, you want to go ahead and uh, give us a little introduction about yourself? Uh and uh, I, I know Adam dropped this in here. This is just kind of a tradition, Darren, that um, we, we ask everybody on the show their thoughts about Taylor Swift. So if you can answer that as well, that'd be great. Yeah, I, I would love to answer that. I was kind of waiting for that question. But uh, yeah, my name's Darren. I'm a, I'm a, I would say I'm a geek. I, I mean, I love video games. I love reading books. I, I love movies, too. I'm just kind of one of those, uh, I guess, the archetypical nerd, um, I guess you could say. But uh, well, nerd and geek are two totally different things. So, I mean, pick a side. Ooh, all right. Well, what, what's your definition of a nerd and what's your definition of a geek? Maybe so, I can answer it better. Yeah. So the classification kind of goes um, nerd is a lot more a lot more uh, science and geek is a lot more kind of like pop culture and science fiction. And I know there's a large divide in this, but there's like a, a plot chart that I've seen a couple times pop up like. So you're geeky, you're more geeky if you deal with like computers and things like that. You're more nerdy if you deal with like the hard science and physics and things. Okay. Um, yeah, I would actually associate myself with geekiness more than, but I, I feel like I do have a couple traits in nerdiness too. But if I was going to pick one or the other, I would say geek. But uh, to answer the question about Taylor Swift, um, you know, I love Taylor. Uh, her latest album was great, Reputation. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of good songs on it, a couple slappers, like Look What You Made Me Do. I think that's a fantastic song. Um, I do miss the old Taylor, though. Uh, you know, the country singing Taylor, uh, Teardrops on My Guitar was awesome. So was You Belong With Me. Um, if she did, like, a throwback to those kind of uh, those kind of songs, I think that would be amazing, you know? those are That's my favorite Taylor. But this one's good, too. Yeah, you know that's coming in, like, the deluxe edition of Reputation, right? So when that gets released with, like, deluxe edition, which has a bunch of, like, other tracks, you know she's, I'm hoping at least, I'm kind of on the same side. Like, maybe she sneaks in a little bit of Old Taylor. Like, there's still Old Taylor there. She just doesn't want to show it right now, you know? Right, you know, when you've been following Taylor since the beginning, I, I think she needs to do some homage to the original fans. You know, she didn't get to where she was without the Old Taylor kind of music. I know she says in her song that she's, the Old Taylor's dead. But I, I think she can still show some of it. Yeah, you know, like you gotta you gotta go back to your roots sometimes. It's just is is this the time in her career where it has right? Because you follow artists, and it, like you said, if you follow them from the beginning, they have their ups and downs, and they have their their experimentation albums, or where they just listened to the record label, or where they stuck to the script, or where they went off script, or they tried something different, they tried something new, and you're kind of seeing that with Taylor now, you know, as she's kind of like gone through each one of these stages, so. I, I do have to say it's nice to have another Taylor Swift fan on the podcast because usually I am grossly outnumbered by people who don't like Taylor Swift. So, yes, you are. You know, if you need anyone to defend you, just give me a call. I got your back on that one, man. That's perfect. Love it. Adam's so happy right now. You have no idea, Darren. 
<laughs> I got a huge smile on my face. I'm just like, mm, this is going to be great. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, do you have any other uh, introductions in, other than that, Darren? Or uh, Adam, do you have any? Uh, I know Adam, we should say, like Adam and Darren don't know each other. They've never met each other. Uh, Darren's a guest this week. So uh, do you have any questions? Um. Let me think. So you kind of put me on the spot, and I don't want to ask the usual one because I already got the answer to my normal question. Um, but I guess, like, you, so you mentioned geeky, so more into, like, computers and gaming, things like that. So uh, I kind of want to hear your thoughts because the the Game Awards just came out, Video Game Awards. Sure. So what are your thoughts on the choice of Best Game of the Year uh, and the trailer for Death Stranding? I guess those are the two questions I have. Okay. Um, remind me one more time who won best game of the year. Uh, I I want to say it was uh, Zelda, right? Yep, Breath of the Wild. Oh, all the way. Ten okay. out of ten. My book. Yeah. Yeah, I absolutely love Zelda. Um, you know, I had a Switch initially, and obviously that was the first game I got for the Switch. And I hate open world games usually, or like the exploration portion of it. I don't like exploring and going out of my way to get the things. I like going from point A to point B. But Zelda was one of those games where I really loved exploring. Something about, like, the towers or seeing, like, the whole world, the view distances in the game was really awesome. Where, like, you could see all the towers that you haven't, like, uh, climbed up yet or explored. So Zelda, I don't know if it forced me to or kind of, like, subconsciously made me explore. But I really enjoyed the open world concept of uh, Zelda. And I think it really it works really well for Nintendo and uh, the Zelda franchise. Yeah, I totally agree. So that's was hands down my favorite game of 2017. Probably my favorite game of all time. But it, I, it was great, like you said, like getting the vantage point from a tower and seeing wherever you wanted to go. They, they kind of played those really nicely into, you know, just the aesthetic of the world, right? Because I agree, like a lot of, you know, open world exploration games are like, here, go explore the world. And you'll spend all this time walking through a forest, not knowing which way is up or... You know, you usually have some form of compass direction, but you don't really have like a sense of, you know, place in in the world. You're you're still just kind of like freely exploring, bumping into things, hitting boundaries here and there. But with Zelda, like you said, you got up on, you know, this tower, you could see everything. You're like, oh, I kind of want to go in this general direction. And you could just go that way and kind of have a pretty good like North Star to, you know, like reference here and there. So I agree. It was a great overworld game. uh, And I'm really glad it got game of the year. So. I think it deserved it. Oh, yeah, right. Like, Nintendo, this was their year, right? So they've, you know, had their ups and downs, and the Wii U was kind of a slump for them, and, like, they're just kind of back full force right now. So I know they haven't sold as many units, which is Lou's big sticking point, is they don't have as big of a market share. But, you know, the the Switch is relatively new still, and it's the holiday season right now, so who knows how many of those things will be under Christmas trees. And, like, all the DLC's out for Zelda now, so... I mean, just woohoo all around. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. But I, I, I agree with everything you said about uh, Breath of the Wild. I think it was a great game. So the next question I have is uh, another one of my favorite games, which is like Metal Gear Solid. So Kojima, you know, now he's since he's away from Konami, now he has that that Death Stranding game, and we've seen trailers here and there. And I don't know if you've watched all of them, but I'm curious if you saw this last trailer for Death Stranding and what your thoughts are. Yeah, um, I definitely did see it. I don't know what the fuck just happened uh, in it. It was definitely a acid trip, I guess you could say, in a game trailer form. 
Um, it's the dude from Walking Dead in it. I know that. Uh, I can't think of his name right now. Norman, is it Norman uh, Reedus? Is that his last name? That's thing? correct. Yep. Okay. That's okay. it. There we go. Um, as you can tell, I don't watch Walking Dead, but uh, I do recognize that character or that guy, Daryl or whatever. Um, but yeah, that trailer, man, I, I have no idea what the hell just happened in it. But it, it, it definitely captured my interest in a weird kind of way where it's like, how, how is this relevant? How is the baby coming out of the dude's mouth? This whole like weird sci-fi thing like like i said with the baby i i I just don't know what the hell is happening but it did definitely capture my interest and of course i love metal gear solid metal gear solid 5 and metal gear solid 4 and uh i i didn't play the original one or two i did play number three four and five and they were all like pretty awesome um so i mean i'm excited to see what the hell this game is but as far as like um the trailer itself yeah it's beyond me man like i have no idea what the hell's going on here yeah i like how you said it's like an acid trip for a video game trailer right like because yeah there's so much stuff happening you're like okay there's a baby and they detach the baby and there's this black goo and then mads mickelson is there in trailer number two he doesn't really well i guess it he doesn't appear like you can't see his face, but all, there's all this speculation that he's the figure that, you know, hops up on the bus after this the stuff happens. And like they've got, you know, these like weird little like detectors, like radar detectors that are looking for something. And it's all invisible. You can't really see what's happening. And then you look up and there's this giant figure. And dude, it's like, oh, my God, like there's so much to unpack with virtually zero dialogue other than screaming and, you know, saying the guy's name, which is Sam. It's like, OK, cool. I know his name, but I know virtually nothing about this plot. I know that the the engine they're using, which is the, I believe, I don't know if they're still using the Fox engine or not, but whatever rendering engine they're using is pretty awesome because the motion capture, everything looks really realistic. Um, but but yeah, it, it's it leaves more questions. It, it poses more questions than it answers questions. And I'm curious to see like when that game comes out, what it's actually going to be, even what style of gameplay it's going to be. Because I don't I don't even know if they've released like gameplay footage. Oh no, they haven't. Yeah, and like. And that just kind of lends more to the confusion. And you're like, okay, well, so do I get to play the baby? Do I get to play Norman Reedus? And I know I get to play Norman Reedus, but, oh, man, it's it's just weird. And uh, oh, what was the other thing I was going to say is, did you ever see that movie Eraserhead, like that old David Lynch film? No, I actually haven't. Okay, and, and that movie is trippy in of itself. But I don't know, like the whole baby thing kind of like reminded me of that. And there's all these rumors out there saying like, oh, well, the babies are a clone of the person. And, you know, like... That's why the guy, you know, detached the baby, gave it to Norman Reedus and killed himself as it as all this shit was happening. It was like, oh, so cloning and okay, I just... And then all the dialogues like about, you know, the big bang, right? And there was another bang and another explosion. And I'm like, well, I, I don't know what's happening. So I'm curious to see if anyone's, like, anyone's going to like crack that code. Because, dude, they're like, they're reading the numbers on the guy's suit. And they're like, oh, this is, you know, a verse in Psalm, you know, 47. And it reads like this. And like, that's, you know, a really, you know, really interesting verse if, you know, they pick those numbers and that's what they want you to read. I'm like, man, like, I'm not Da Vinci coding the shit out of this thing. You know, I'll let other people do it. But I just want to play the game because it looks interesting. But I don't know, man, shelling out $60 for a game that I don't know a lot about. Uh... Uh, yeah, I, I agree with you on that. Now, um, <laughs> it's funny that you brought up like, the conspiracy theories. I feel like everyone does that for every single trailer that comes out where they're kind of ambiguous. So I'm not surprised people are trying to decipher uh, this one. Um, most likely, chances are everyone's completely wrong 
about their interpretation of the trailer. And knowing Kojima, it's going to be something that we absolutely did not expect. Uh, the the cloning thing is interesting, though. I, I didn't really think of it that way. But um, it, it, it makes sense when you explained it. But I, I feel like it's something else. Um, as far as what it is, though, it, it's beyond me, man. I, you probably need like a 3000 IQ to like decipher that because it's, it's way beyond me. Yeah, you just need to get in the head of Kojima and then you'll understand everything. Yeah, exactly. Um, other side note, Metal Gear Solid 3 was the best Metal Gear Solid game, bar none. I just, I know the graphics weren't there yet, but they were pretty good. And just that story is pretty legendary, so. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you on that one. Metal Gear Solid 3 was pretty cool. Um, 4 was really cool to see, like, Super Old Snake. Uh, 5 was, 5 was okay. I think that was, it was still a good game. Uh, I mean, the engine for it, the Fox engine, was totally badass. Uh, the game itself, though, like story-wise, was I think it was um, it wasn't weak. But if you're gonna like pick a favorite child, I would say Metal Gear Solid Five would be my least favorite child, so to speak. Yeah, because that's the one where you know there was all this fight over like how the game, the game direction, and where it was supposed to go, and that's really when you know Kojima and Konami started breaking ties. And that's why his name's not even like on the on the game box, right? It's not even on the box art anymore. So you can really tell that that's like when he left because the direction he had originally, like when you played like Ground Zeroes or you kind of had the intro to you know Big Boss, right? In, yeah. As Kiefer Sutherland, right? You had that intro and you played through that game, but you didn't really know where it was going to go. And the original gameplay like started making sense, and then. When they start adding in all the base features and you know all the base building features, and then the way they tie it up in the end, you're just kind of like, okay, like I guess, but really, is is that where we where we wanted to go with this, or was that just kind of like a cop out or like just a quick wrap up, you know? Yeah, they they were kind of like tie making ends tie like very very quickly or rapidly, I should say, because there was, there was a lot of them. All right. Well, I think I got all my uh, game discussion out of the way, so. Lou, you can continue with your regularly scheduled programming. Okay. Uh, cool. So the next thing in the intro here is uh, unfortunately a repeat. And uh, it's become also, sadly, a theme is like the natural disasters that happen. Uh, but California is once again on fire. And I think last time we discussed this, it was Northern California that was primarily on fire. And this time it's Southern California. Um, so I know at least locally here, we've had some fires around LA and San Diego closer to where we are. Um, I don't know, Adam, um, you have some rental property. Was that impacted at all? So, uh, our rental's fine. The other thing is my mom's pretty close to one of them, but she's on the other side of it and it's moving kind of the opposite direction from her, but she's packed up, ready to go. And we've kind of been through this. Like we've had to evacuate once because of a fire that came 15 miles away from our house, you know, so pretty close. And this one's probably about 25 miles away from her house right now. So she kind of like knows the the drill at this point, right? Like, okay, have your stuff packed up. You know, we, she knows where the shelters are, everything like that. But so far, so good. I got my fingers crossed and I keep, you know, checking the, uh, the Cal Fire website. We should probably link to that at least with, uh, with the map. And that kind of has like up-to-date information on the status or percentage of containment on all the fires. And it's a really good resource for people, but you know, everyone in California, you know, take care of yourselves, like take those, you know, warnings seriously and 
you can't really outrun a fire. It's, it's tough to do, especially with the Santa Ana's. Like I know they've been picking up like up to 60 miles an hour and, you know, that's just making things just kind of exacerbate, you know, like exacerbates the situation, makes things worse. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Darren, was any of your family or friends impacted by this at all? Uh, no, fortunately, um, none of them were affected by it. Now there was actually a guy on my Facebook, ironically, um, he, uh, posted a video of the fire pretty much in his backyard and it, it, it's kind of surreal to see it, you know, like a video of it, someone that, you know, posting a video of it, but, um, that it was kind of, kind of messed up. That's, there was a guy, his friend, his mutual or his friend, uh, posted something about him. Like he took a picture of himself at his house saying, you know, the fire's not affecting me. Don't care about it. I'm here comfy. And the dude that was probably a hundred yards away from the fire. I can only imagine how he feels that someone would be so naive to post that on his own video. Um, he said something along the lines like, Oh, it looks comfy, man. Like, you know, glad you're safe. Uh, it, it's, um, it's, the fire is something that is, it, it's definitely, a, it's been affecting us pretty closely here in, uh, in the area. And it, it affected us on both sides here, you know, south of us and north of us in the area. And um, just the fact that the day of, the, when the fires did start, you know, everything was super ashy and it was really hard to breathe almost. And all the schools closed down and, you know, there was a lot of traffic on the freeways. And I feel like a lot of people were trapped. Uh, I've seen a lot of people on Twitter, Facebook, you know, trying to help out. And, you know, they're trying to give people free uh uh, like an evacuation, like they'll give them free rides or even places to store their horses. Cause I know there's like a lot of uh, horses and animals that were trapped due to the fire. So it was, it was really cool to see the community get together and help one another out. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's, you know, kind of brings out the best and the worst in us, uh, unfortunately with these disasters. So, you know, we, uh, you know, as usual, I mean, we don't like to say, you know, we're kind of keeping everybody in our thoughts and prayers, but we are, of course. I mean, that's just kind of like the, the the passing phrase, but this is actually hitting a little closer at home. And so we definitely know some people affected, uh, at least I do. Um, so I uh, nobody's lost their home, but, you know, within just a mile or so of their home. So it's definitely affecting their communities. So, uh, you know, I, I hope, you know, we this kind of comes to an end shortly here. But uh, if it's all right, we'll go ahead and we'll move into some follow-up here. And I know, I think, Adam, you dropped this in the notes here, but um, I think you just kind of wanted to cover our bases here and say, we probably missed a few uh, VR headsets. Is that what you were kind of going for? Yeah, it was kind of like a cover-my-ass moment. It was like, I know we probably missed some because it's, it's an emerging market, right? There's, there's lots of, of players. So we rattled off some of the well-known ones, and I'm sure there's a lot of you know, other lesser-known ones that, you know, maybe doing really interesting things. So sorry if we miss any of those. Feel free to, you know, tweet at us or send in feedback. But and just kind of a, like you said, a cover my ass moment. Like, I know we missed some. So sorry if we did. If there's a really, really cool one, send it to us. We, we can talk about it in future follow-up. Good job. I like your uh, CYA. And uh, you, you know that somehow... Whenever you like talk about, you know, the top three, there's always like the one dude that comes out of the, you know, woodworks and he's like, no, but my Panasonic, you know, VR headset's the best one ever. And you're like, really, dude? Really? So, you know, we, we got to pay homage to everybody equally. So I, I, I'm, I'm down with that. Um, 
So the other thing of note here in follow-up is that if you've been to our website as of late, uh, there's been a little issue with the uh, footer, which is where all the links to subscribe to the podcast are. And uh, myself and Adam and everybody's kind of been like harassing uh, Squarespace, who uh, you know is the host of the site, and saying, "Hey guys, like there seems to be something broken here," and they kind of like fix it, and then we like mess with something, and then it. The footer just deletes again, but we we've kind of worked around it for the time being. So you should see links again. So you know, definitely subscribe. Tell your friends about it. They now can go to the website and subscribe. So that's cool. Adam, you have any uh, other uh, words on that? Yeah, I can't believe you really put this like in in the follow up because I mean it's it's not really that important. Like people don't have to see behind the curtain. Like we can just say like, hey, like there are links to subscribe on the website, and people will figure it out. Like. People don't need to know that's broken, you know? It was never broken. It's always worked. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> you're going to say we, like, have, like, 100% uptime, Adam? Is that what you're going for here? I'm saying the 99. I don't know if we've gotten to the five nines yet, but, you know, we're, we've definitely gotten to at least two nines. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd have to agree. I think we're in the two nine uh, area. So let's jump into this week's episode. So this week we're going to talk a little bit about the blockchain and uh, Adam, I don't know if you want to go for your added sound effect there, but you're more than welcome to. Uh, I put it in there for you. Oh dude, I'm not doing it. Um, so I, I guess we're just going to open this up and, and, and just kind of start a little broad here, but, uh, you know, what, what is the blockchain? And, and Darren, we should probably say we, we kind of brought you on because you definitely have a little bit of experience in this uh, realm. So what is the blockchain to you? What, and uh, you mind just kind of going with a general definition here? Yeah, um, the blockchain is a ledger of things. Um, it, most people do associate the blockchain with uh, Bitcoin. Uh, because it did ultimately stem from Bitcoin, a person or a group, we're not exactly sure what or who they are, named Satoshi, created this concept of a blockchain. And essentially, it's like a ledger of systems or transactions or even contracts uh, that are, the idea is sort of to be decentralized, where there's no central authority that keeps track of these transactions or um these contracts, uh, it is peer to peer, essentially, in the same way a torrent is, where you're going from, a, you know, there's a whole web of devices that communicate with one another, and uh, essentially the blockchain is something that where if there's a transaction that's being made, it's added on to the end of a blockchain, and it forms a really, 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 really long line of transactions or contracts that every single time a new one is made. Uh, the computers or the devices that are all part of a node or the nodes of the blockchain, they all communicate with one another to form or to kind of authenticate and make sure that everything's okay. Uh, they all double check their work with one another to make sure that the blockchain's intact and is accurate. So instead of just one central location where there's possibly a margin for error, the work or the activities double checked by you know, you can extrapolate that to hundreds or even thousands of different nodes that all constantly check one another to make sure everyone is up to speed and everyone has the same exact blockchain. Cool, cool. Uh, Adam, uh, would you like to add anything? Well, I, I mean, he, he dove like feet first into it. So like, awesome. And, and, he, and he covered most of the things, right? So I mean, if we look at like the 50,000 foot view, right, which is the typical term that most people use is like, what is the blockchain? 
And the blockchain is essentially a decentralized, notarized ledger, or not even necessarily notarized, but it's a decentralized ledger uh, across multiple computers. And we'll kind of get into like how it works. And Darren's done an excellent job already of explaining like, hey, you know, this is what it is. And these are how the transactions are verified. And this is what the blockchain does. And we'll get into more of it. But I think, you know, 50,000 foot view, it's a decentralized ledger. And we'll talk about kind of like how it works and why, you know, what problems it's solving in a little bit. But man, like props to Darren for like summarizing it in like, you know, the 30 seconds and like really <laughs> just digging into like how it works. Too. I was like, oh, okay, yep, there we go. We don't have to do anymore. We can stop the show now. Blockchain's done. Yeah, I'm sorry for going guns blazing here, guys. And no, it's good. I love it. Because I mean, that's the thing is, is when, when we when we take a concept like the blockchain is like, there's, there's easy to jump in and say like, hey, this is what it does. And this is how it does it. And this is why it does it. And then it's like, all right, so if we really break it out, like, what does it do? How is it doing this? And I, and I think right now is like the what, right? It's all it is. And it, it kind of like breaks it down. All it is, is a ledger. That's really all is just a list of transactions. Uh, and then the interesting things, the things that kind of like get you into the meat of, you know, what the blockchain essentially is, right? Not what it is, but what it is, right? Like the metaphysical uh, type type situation is all the things that it solves. And once we get into, you know, what that ledger can be used for, it gets really interesting. Yeah, I think, uh, Darren, you did a really good job of summarizing that. And, uh, you know, I think we should, I don't know that I really have anything to add on the what. You guys did a great job of that. But uh, moving on to kind of the, how does it work? I think this is where it's going to get maybe a little bit more technical. Um, so what do you two know about how it works uh, and how it goes through kind of keeping, you know, Darren, I know you said the nodes. So there's like a bunch of different, you know, nodes around the world, I guess, with computers and it's keeping the ledger up to date at all of these. Is that a fair way to put it? Yeah, I, that's definitely a good way of putting it. Um, you know, the obviously the science behind it or the technical uh, the concept behind it's pretty mind blowing, but you know, from a fifty thousand foot view, I would say that yeah, there is certain computers or nodes that communicate with one another to make sure everything is accurate and up to date. Uh, they're there to make sure that everyone is on the same page, uh, to make sure that everyone has the latest information and make sure that the information is in a certain order. Uh, hence, the chain portion of a blockchain. You know, it obviously goes in a certain order. Yeah. If, if you're familiar with like Git and how like a repository works, right, you have your, your main branch and then you can have, you know, like trunks and forks and things like that. But the blockchain is essentially a, a linear chain where you can see. And the, the job of all these nodes is essentially when a transaction occurs, like someone reports a transaction and then everyone has to verify that transaction. So they basically go through the chain, they verify everything in the chain and they verify this last transaction. And once that's verified, it gets added to the end of the chain and then everyone knows about it. So it's really just a bunch of computers doing math, but all verifying the same thing and kind of racing to solve the problem and who can solve it the fastest to add this this last you know transaction to the end of the uh, the chain. And once they do that, we'll talk about mining a little bit, right? Especially with cryptocurrencies. But essentially, all they're supposed to do is a lot of bookkeeping and making sure that no one can compromise this ledger. Like this ledger is true because it's been verified by every node on the block. Or sorry, on the on the chain. So, yeah. So I, I think that that pretty well does a good job. And I and I mean, I'm really interested in the uh, the actual mining part of it, and we'll we'll get into that in a, in a little bit. Um, but 
you guys have kind of touched on this a little bit. You know, what is this really solving for us? And the one thing that, you know, points out to me right away or that, you know, is just kind of like, oh, that moment of like, oh my gosh, I know exactly what this is solving. It is the sort of attack surface side of things. I mean, we, we you know, uh, I think Adam, you dropped a, a link to a, you know, documentary this week um, about this. And you hear about all these big companies being attacked. And that was kind of talked about in the documentary. And because this is like a distributed ledger and like a network of computers, I mean, it's basically impossible to kind of, you know, hack everybody, every node, every computer that's, you know, on the blockchain. And so it really does protect a lot of people that way. And it, you know, is accounting for every dollar or not dollar, quote unquote, but every, you know, coin moving around. And so there's no way for someone to hide money or like fake money or, you know, things like that. So, but what else does this really, you know, kind of solve for us? There's obviously a lot of things, but I'm curious, what else does it solve, guys? Uh, I mean, obviously, as we said before, that there's a lot of math behind it, you know, as far as, I, I think it'd be better explained when we talk about mining, but the way the blockchain was initially designed was to solve a lot of complex math equations, and the first you know the first use for it was uh for bitcoin so that uh without getting too much into bitcoin just yet uh i mean it's a each blockchain would be a very complex equation that has uh the idea is that there's a finite amount of mathematical equations and as more and more equations are being solved they get more and more difficult to solve um so as far as <clears throat> uses for it uh, it, it helps keep everything in check, and it makes it very uh, accurate, and it's it's pretty hard to cheat. So with all these nodes and it being decentralized, it's it's a it's a definitely a, an advantage of it. Um, it <clears throat> when you have something that is centralized, like for example, uh, a bank, you know, it's one source of information or one point where it could be easily attacked. Versus something that's decentralized, you know, if you're gonna attack or steal information from the blockchain, you're going to have to steal information from, you know, hundreds of thousands or how many, however many nodes there are out there in the world. So it's definitely, I would say, a more secure version. Um, it's definitely also incorruptible too. So, you know, obviously each node checks one another to make sure that everything is accurate and is not corrupted. So if you do have one node that goes down, all these other nodes can definitely uh, pick up the slack, so to speak, of the down node. And it, it makes it, I, I would say, the uptime's more reliable than if it was a central sur uh, source. You know, I'm sure, Adam, you've had experiences with, like, uh, gaming where you try to log into Xbox Live or uh, PlayStation Network or whatever you use. And you might have some service downtime and you're going, what the hell? You know, I just want to play my games. Why isn't there, like, a plan like a plan B or a backup server that Sony or Microsoft's using? And it's pretty nice uh, if it was decentralized. If that was decentralized where, say, Sony's uh, servers were down. You could use like an alternative backup server, uh, or everyone has their own mini server, so to speak, and together they make one giant server. So if one server goes down, it's not going to affect everyone else. Um, it's it has a lot of advantages in security and accuracy too. Yeah, and kind of kind of to add on what you guys have said, right? I think the biggest part of it, right, is it's decentralized. So being decentralized kind of gives it all of the benefits it you know like you guys said prevents any fraud from happening it means that the ledger is always true unless someone you know compromises every node on the system 
that means very resilient to attack. It means you got, like you guys have said, your attack surface is much larger, larger. And there's no, no one can control the, 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 the blockchain, right? There's no, there's no one who can sway things one way or the other. So, you know, you, you talk about, you mentioned the banks thing and I, and I think we'll get into cryptocurrency first and this will kind of be like a good way for us to dive into that, right? So when you have a central authority whose basic job is to, you know, control and verify that this is how much a dollar is worth and this is how many dollars we have and this is who received this money and this is the money that was given here, blah, blah, blah. If that central authority gets compromised or something happens, basically, you know, the whole system is is corrupted and you, you lose kind of that truth. So with the blockchain, everyone's responsible for keeping the truth. And when everyone's responsible for keeping the truth, it means that when there's one liar, you know, there's 5,000, you know, 5 million other people saying like, nope, that guy's a liar. That's not true. Get it out of here. So just the decentralization part and concept of the blockchain is what makes it so unique. And like Darren said, there's a lot of math with it. And you talk about, you know, how as the ledger grows, the math gets more and more complex and it gets longer and longer and longer to, you know, complete all of uh, these processes, which is kind of one of the cons of, of the blockchain. But we'll get to that in a little bit. But I, I think having a ledger that, that opens up a lot of use cases, right? So if you think of anything that needs to have a ledger that you need to have verified or that you need to have as a source of truth, the blockchain kind of solves that problem, right? And it does it in a way that you're not relying on one person to say, yep, that's true. You're relying on an entire you know, group of people to say, yeah, that's true, all at the same time. Cool. So I think we should, you know, we've kind of danced around the subject a lot, but we should probably just jump into the current uses of the blockchain itself. So, I mean, the most popular one we we definitely uh, have already mentioned is just uh, cryptocurrencies. And so um, I know that's really Bitcoin itself, but um, do you want to dive a little bit more into um, cryptocurrencies and what that actually looks like in terms of Bitcoin? What do you actually you know, doing, how do I acquire it, all those sort of things. And then what does it look like to transfer it? Yeah, definitely. So right now, Bitcoin, I'm sure a lot of people have heard about recently, uh, you know, hit, hitting 10,000. And now it's going beyond that. It's a it's a form of currency that's using the blockchain. Um, it uses cryptography, hence the name cryptocurrency. And it's uh, it started off, I want to say 2009 is when it first was made. Um, and it was probably the first true use of cryptocurrency, or I'm sorry, uh, of the blockchain. And basically the way that Bitcoin, the idea behind it is that it's decentralized, um, kind of like what we're talking about with cryptocurrency, where there, it's a peer to peer network and, you know, everyone, your wallet of coins or how much coins you have in your account is checked through all these other nodes to make sure that everything is accurate and that this ledger is public where, you know, it's open information that uh, these nodes are communicating with each other to make sure uh, that you're, you have what you say you have and not, um, you're not like fudging the number, numbers or saying that you have a different number than what you actually have. Um, the Bitcoins were originally started, like, created for a reward uh, for mining. So kind of what we were saying earlier with mining is that mining is how we is how computers are solving these mathematical equations to get uh, to form the blockchain. And the Bitcoin is kind of like a uh, store of value for solving these equations. So they can be exchanged, obviously, for goods and services, just like any other currency. Um, and since they are decentralized, 
the cool thing about Bitcoin itself is that it's it's pretty much international. Um, the idea behind it is that no one government controls Bitcoin, and so if let's say let's say our the U.S. dollar, uh, obviously it's worth. One dollar is worth one dollar to us because our government says it is, right? Uh, but let's say our government collapses tomorrow, and I try to take my dollar and go to Japan. Uh, that one dollar that I have to someone in Japan will probably not be worth the same. And I'm sure it'll be worth a lot less. And also, too, I think it's a convenience factor as well. If I had one dollar and I gave it to a person in Japan. Uh, yeah, $1 is $1, but do they really want to go through the hassles of going through exchanges and possibly losing money? Or uh, would it be better for them just to accept the currency that's accepted, that's that's worth the same nation, you know, or in, internationally? Um, and I'll, I'll talk more about Bitcoin in a little bit. You know, we can go on and on and on about what it is and how much it's worth, but I'll, I'll save that for a little bit later. Yeah, and I think you bring up a good point, right? Like, so the whole point of, of of a cryptocurrency and Bitcoin's initial like mission, right, was to be the currency that everyone can use. That it doesn't matter where you are, where you live, you know, what you have, as long as you have a computer or a phone, you can receive this cryptocurrency, and you don't have to, you know, go to an exchange to get it. You don't have to go through a central authority to get it. You just you can make a transaction. You put money in, you know, or you get rewarded a coin, right? And once you have the currency, you can exchange it, however, and that ledger is public and everyone can see it and everyone's verifying it. And there's there's no central place to collapse, right? We mentioned, you know, that that no control and that preventing fraud, but it means that your Bitcoin is worth your Bitcoin. <laughs> you know, the Bitcoin is always worth one Bitcoin, no matter what. And no matter where you want to use that Bitcoin, it's still worth one Bitcoin. So the theory would be like, hey, this is the money of the future. This is how we get to, you know, a global style credit system, right? So instead of, you know, being paid in dollars in the U.S. and, you know, and pounds and other countries and euros, if you're in, you know, the, uh, you know, on the other side of the pond. Wow, that sounds horrible. (laughs) But basically, everyone would use the same currency. And when everyone uses the same currency, obviously, there are problems with that if there's one person controlling that currency or one central government controlling that currency. So now you kind of have that solved with a decentralized system. So that was like the grandiose, you know, use for Bitcoin. And it was a really good, you know, proof of concept for the blockchain. It, you know, was the kind of, as we say, like in the podcast, like the duh, like, you know, gimme brownie points, right? The easy use case, like, hey, you know, we have this, this ledger, this, what are we going to use it for? Like, well, we could create a currency and we could make sure that every transaction on this currency is kept track by, you know, the blockchain. It's like, okay, yeah, that makes sense, right? Everyone can see it, everyone can control or no one controls it. It was, it was a duh use case for for the blockchain and Bitcoin is really interesting. And I think I kind of want to dig into the mine a little bit because I, I think that's the part that's really fascinating to me. So, like we said, th- this math is complicated, and you can sign up, you know, to be a node on the blockchain if you want to, but it's going to take resources, you know, resources in computing, resources in ele- in electricity, whatever. So, how do you incentivize people to basically? keep track or how do you incentivize them to join this network uh, for this decentralized blockchain? And the way that you do it is you reward them. So like you said, Bitcoins were kind of a reward. It's like, hey, you solved all this math and you, you know, like completed or you added a transaction to the ledger. Awesome. Here you go. Here's a here's a coin. Right? Then you have one Bitcoin. Great. So that's what you think of when you mine. And 
with Bitcoin, basically, there was a set number of Bitcoin from the beginning. It's like, hey, once we get to this, you know, there's no more Bitcoin. Just like once we mine all the gold, there's no more gold. So there is an end to Bitcoin, as in there will be no more new Bitcoins. So that's why you see the exchanges kind of jump all over the place, right? Because Bitcoin right now is really hot. And you mentioned $10,000 and like, yeah, that was, you know, four days ago. And now it's over $16,000. And that was news I heard on Friday, you know, so who knows what it's going to be at on Monday, right? It's, it's kind of taking off right now, which is, I think, why we're, we're starting to talk about this more, right? We, we've had all these things, you know, in the news about, you know, people trying to find efficient ways to mine. And we'll talk about some of the alternate coins, too. But th- this whole thing has really kind of, like, taken off. And it's been around, like you said, since 2009. Like, this concept is, is actually pretty, pretty old. But it's amazing how it's now coming kind of full circle. And we'll, we'll talk about other uses in a little bit, too. But I think Bitcoin itself is like you said, kind of the, the, the OG, the original. And it's really interesting when you start digging into the history of it. So I have uh, two quick questions. One, I know that you said there's a finite amount of coins. Uh, and is there any reason that the number that it is was picked or was that sort of random or does anybody know? And two, is... Is mining the Bitcoin itself um, the, and verifying the transaction, is that something that, is it like one transaction? You know, I mean, essentially, if I, if I buy something and I have Bitcoin um, and they go to verify that transaction, is my individual transaction worth one Bitcoin? I don't think it is. It's blocked together with a bunch of other uh, transactions, if I understand. But maybe you guys can shed some more light on that. Yeah, definitely. Um, the the concept behind like a finite amount of Bitcoin is uh, I think the estimate is that there's going to be 21 million Bitcoins that are going to be in existence. And the uh, the reason why it's that amount is that uh, when you're mining for Bitcoin, there's kind of like uh, diminishing returns. So every uh, the unit of measurement they use for mining is a block. And after a certain amount of blocks, the rewards that you get are halved or the amount of Bitcoins that you get are halved. Um, so after being halved so many times, you're pretty much getting to close to zero as possible where, you know, you're getting to a unit that is so microscopic that at, at, at that point, it's not even worth anything for you. Um, so it, it's it, it's more so the law of diminishing returns at that point. Uh, you're getting awfully close to zero, but you're not quite hitting zero just yet but it's going to get to a point where it's almost worthless to mine um and it's the reason why you're mining is to basically verify transactions between one another so when you're when you're mining you're using a lot of computational power and you're communicating with the network to kind of see uh to make sure all these transactions are accurate so when you are making a bitcoin transaction um it's basically getting published to the blockchain and everyone's making sure that that what you're transacting is what you're transacting. You're not putting down, you're not saying, Hey, I'm putting down two Bitcoins. And in reality, you're only transferring one. Uh, Everything that's out there is making sure that that's correct. It's kind of like having a, someone double check your work, except, you know, extrapolate that to like hundreds of thousands of different computers, all checking your work for you. Um, I don't know if you want to answer the second question or not, Adam. Yeah, you know, to be honest, I'm not 100% sure. Uh, your second question was, if they're, they're all processed as one group of transactions, is that what your question was? 
Yeah. So, I mean, that's definitely part of the question is just, you know, essentially, you know, I buy something for the equivalent of, you know, like 0.0001 Bitcoin or something, you know, and does I, I can't imagine that, you know, my 0.001, you know, Bitcoin is paying one Bitcoin, you know, to resolve that transaction. That really wouldn't make much sense to me. So I assume my transaction is put together with, you know, I don't know, a thousand other, you know, people who are trying to buy something at this moment in time. And it's sent off and, you know, wrapped together. And if everybody's is verified and good, then, you know, at some point in time, whoever solves that first and verifies that the money is in everybody's account is moving hands and, you know, is updated all the ledgers, then that person, whoever is that's doing that, gets the one Bitcoin, you know, that comes out of that. Uh, I could be wrong, but if you guys, if either of you know, that'd be great for me to understand. Well, well, mine, let's say adding something to the ledger is adding a transaction to the ledger. So each ledger is unique. So lumping those together kind of defeats the purpose, right? Like you're not lumping a, a group of them together from my understanding is you're actually verifying that one transaction. So you're, you're verifying like, hey, someone paid this much to this person in Bitcoin, right? And it came from this wallet and it's going to this wallet. And they verify that. And once that gets added to the chain, you get your added to the end of the chain, you get your reward. Um, as far as the amount of the reward, I can't say for sure. But since each transaction is unique, I'm assuming they would have to be added one by one. And that's why on average, like, right, as the blockchain grows, it becomes that much harder to add something to the ledger, right? Because so many people are trying to do it. And the blockchain is is a lot larger now to verify all of these transactions. And as, you know, traffic increases, I think, and this, I'm coming, I'm quoting the documentary. So they were saying to, to verify a transaction in Bitcoin takes around seven minutes, right? Because you're talking about, you know, adding, adding this, this thing to this ledger that has to be verified by all of these other nodes. So that takes a little bit of time uh, as you're verifying everything, but you guys can correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. Um, you know, when you when you're at the grocery store and the uh, your total is you know six dollars and seventy cents, you're not going to give the cashier seven dollars. You know, uh, Bitcoin does can divide into smaller units, and those smaller units are called satoshis. And those satoshis, uh, if you want to imagine it, are a very 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 small percentage of a bit or a very small portion of a Bitcoin itself. So when you're making a transaction, each transaction is uh, different from each other. Um, so when you're looking at the ledger, it'll show that, like, say, Lou, you paid half a Bitcoin to Adam. Uh, on the uh, ledger, it's going to show that you paid, you know, you paid 0.5 of a Bitcoin. It's not going to wait for another transaction to go through and, uh, you know, lump it as one whole sum. So you, you can definitely divide the Bitcoin up. And the unit of measurement that they do use for that is a Satoshi. Got it. Got it. OK, that makes that makes a bit more sense then. Um so we, we've talked a little bit about Bitcoin, but there are a lot of other uses for the blockchain itself, because the, the idea of the blockchain and the idea of the ledger is, is you know, currency is one, you know, kind of obvious choice for us as, as humans. We have banks, we have all that stuff that is, you know, really principled and rooted on a ledger. But, you know, an example of some stuff that's outside of this uh Property ownership, voting, and cloud storage are all a couple things we've got here in, in this outline. So, do you, you guys want to talk a little bit about what that looks like? I know property ownership is an interesting one uh, because uh, you mentioned Darren um, contracts and and that you know the the system supports 
contracts and things like that. So you, you want to talk about that just briefly? Yeah, definitely. So uh, obviously contracts exist in today's world, right? Um, uh, it, it Sometimes it can be hard to, or it can be difficult to make it binding. Uh, so the system for the blockchain uh, is what's called smart contracts, where you can use, you can utilize the blockchain and make some programmable uh, contracts that are all digital on the blockchain. And obviously, let, let, let's say you're a company that uh, issues, I don't know, let's say, uh, we'll make it super simple. We uh, issue cell phone services, right? And each person that we sell a cell phone service to has a two-year contract. So we can put that on the blockchain and make sure that, you know, hey, it's in digital writing here that you owe us $10 every month for the uh, your cell phone service plan. And you can use this blockchain as kind of like a notarized system and make it essentially more efficient and the legal system more uh, accurate or binding where, you know, it, it kind of like how the transactions work for Bitcoin, where you see the transaction, it's there, it's binding, you've already transferred over your money through Bitcoin. You could do it with a contract where it's saying, hey, you know, it's in the blockchain, it's in writing, it's digital, it's there, you know, it's you agreed upon this, it's in the system, you know, you got to stick to it. Uh, I know that there's other uses too, where you could use it for like identity as well. Um, you know, you could put like uh, someone's, let's say you could put someone's social security number and you have a kind of a database for it. Because essentially what the blockchain is, is a database of information. So you could put someone's social security number or you could put, let's say the US government is assigning social security numbers. Uh, they can put in order by, I, I don't know how they exactly assign social security numbers. So I'm sorry if I completely butcher how the social security system works, and I apologize. Um, but let's say that it's in order of whoever's born, right? So you have a super, super, super long blockchain uh, that shows everyone's social security number in order. Uh, and, you know, they you have systems here that kind of collabor- collaborate with one another to make sure that everything is accurate and everything says what it is. Yeah, I mean, obviously there are huge benefits to that because... <laughs> Getting systems to talk to one another is, is obviously very complex in today's day and age. So to have a system, you know, like this that is kind of distributed but all on the same page is is, you know, sort of the the gold standard or the idea that I think we would all like to get to. And, you know, voting and, and cloud storage and ride sharing are all just some other examples. Um I'm kinda of interested, Adam, you it looks like you dropped in ride sharing. What what did you mean by this? Well, I know that there are examples of ride sharing out there, right? So let's say you want to say like, oh, I, you know, took a ride from this person to this person, right? And it, it, it's all in, in the same thing. Like I want to, you know, see who's available or I want to track, you know, a ride that went from here to here. Or I want to make sure that whoever, you know, wherever I end up, someone can, you know, make sure that I got there or whatever it is, right? When you start talking about, I mean, it all goes back to the same concepts, right? You want something decentralized and, you know, monitored by everyone else. So ride sharing, ride hailing. Basically, if you if you need to follow a transaction list, then the blockchain will solve solve that problem. So I'm, I, I'll be honest, I'm not too familiar with the ride sharing aspect of it. But that's just one of the examples that it can be used for. I was more intrigued by, you know, property ownership, which makes total sense to me, right? Like, hey, how do how does someone know I owe this land? I own this land? 
right? Like, well, okay, you know, this, this central authority said that you did, but let's say, you know, someone went there and like, you see this in all these like cliche movies, right? Someone goes into, you know, the city council and they go steal, you know, city plans or they go tear up a contract or like shred it and, you know, like destroy all the evidence and make sure it never existed, right? So it's harder to do that in the digital age, which is why all those movies are kind of funny. It's like, oh, let me go shred this. Like, you mean to tell me they don't have a backup somewhere else? Like, well, you know, it's the government, so who knows? But, but property ownership, right? It's like, yeah, so-and-so owns this land. And it says so on, on the ledger, right? So they bought this land on this time, and this is what land it is, and these are the coordinates. This is, the, you know, the plot location. Like, there it is in writing. So I think that's the interesting thing for me. Like, you start getting into kind of, like, the, these fringe settings, right, where it's like, okay, I have ride-sharing. Like, okay, you can use the blockchain for that. Like, that's interesting. Cloud storage, right? Like, decentralized storage. If you guys have ever watched Silicon Valley, right, their whole kind of, you know, middle-out <laughs> middle compression, right, the, the dick-stroking thing, and how they want to get on everyone's phone and basically make an internet. And that's kind of the, like you said, not the aha or the la, you know, like, cue the, you know, dramatic music, is what if everything was stored on, you know, this ledger, everything was stored on, on a blockchain, and you could access it on a decentralized system from anywhere with anything. And you were now delivering, you know, data or sending data back and forth, essentially replacing the internet, because right now the internet is a bunch of nodes kind of all over the place, right? But you still have the pipes that get you from point A to point B. And that's still a problem you'd have to solve. But I mean, you could put theoretically like the internet on the blockchain as well because like Darren said it's just a giant database it's just a bunch of information so if you need to call up something if let's say that website is just you know a block on the blockchain all right i go pull that information and i know it's verified and i know i can find it blah 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 so it's just amazing that this something this concept of the blockchain can solve tons and tons of stuff but I'll, i'll leave the the best use case for last yeah, and you know, I, I think ultimately it's it's pretty nice to have the blockchain concept, you know, in other places for security. Uh, I'm sure you guys are aware of Target being hacked, for example. Um, imagine if there wasn't a central database with everyone's credit card numbers on it, but in reality, it was spread out between uh, hundreds of thousands of you know computers, and each each computer that has the information or each node. It's a tiny fraction of it. So that one computer that or node that has access to that information only sees that tiny fraction. But if they communicate with each other on the blockchain, obviously it makes up some relevant piece of information, like maybe a credit card number or uh, someone's uh, ID. So it, it prevents one central location from being hacked and having all the information stolen from or accessed or breached. And instead it spreads it out to all these other nodes where that if one goes down or one gets breached, it doesn't harm the integrity of all the other ones too. Um, so yeah, target would be one that use of blockchain that I would highly, highly suggest, suggest that they do. Um, you know, you can also use it maybe in the stock market too, uh, to just make sure that everyone, like say if you buy stocks, uh, say you buy something in GE, right? And uh, there's you got to pay all these fees. You got to make sure everyone authenticates and make sure that or authorizes that you do obtain a a share of GE, right? Uh, If you use the blockchain, you know, you can have all these nodes communicate with one another to make sure that you did receive that transaction of GE and that it was authorized and it was authenticated. Uh, There's no, you know, manual labor or no single person checking your work. All these nodes are collaborating with one another to make sure that what you say you did or what transaction that you did made was already authenticated through all these nodes. 
Yeah, and that brings up a good point too, is like you talk about getting all these middlemen out of there, right? And then you start talking about getting rid of all these fees, right? Like if this is an open system and you know everything is is checking itself and there is no manual labor, you start talking about, okay, well, why do we have this, you know, transaction fee or why do we have, you know, this fee here? If the reward for, you know, people, you know, keeping this ledger is in place and everyone is, you know, on this, then there's really no need to to charge a, an end user a fee to to take something out or put something on or make a transaction on this chain. Yeah, it completely eliminates a lot of the uh, administrative overhead that you might see nowadays, especially in the banking system or in the stock market or even just like contracts in general, or I would say even government use too. You know, I, I know you left notes about voting uh, in the uh, outline. Uh, you know, if obviously I, I don't want to get too political, but you know, we've heard cases of voter fraud in the last election, right? In 2016. Uh, what if we had a system that if we had all these nodes that have X amount of votes for X, uh, X candidate, right? And if one node is saying something different than all these other nodes, then, you know, we can make, we can say that, Hey, that this one was tampered with. We'll probably not use that information because this one's reporting a different number than all these hundreds of thousands of other voting booths or nodes or wh- whatever you want to call them. Uh, it helps ultimately it makes sure, it makes a lot of the information accurate out there. You know, that's very important to have, especially in say a government election or in the stock market. Well, yeah. And, and the thing with voting too, right. Is, is the whole thing of like double votes or counting votes twice, whatever it was, if it's on a, if it's on the blockchain, there is no double spending. There is no double votes, right? Like you only have the one transaction that you can reference. And that transaction is tied to, you know, let's say a, an individual or whatever it is. So as you said, you know, you're given a number and your number can be used, you know, for this one vote and you can vote this way or this way. And that's what you get, right? Like you said, it it gets rid of like, okay, someone tampered with the system, but there's, you know, every other node calling it out. So it'd be much harder, but that in brings up some of like the the challenges with uh with the blockchain is that you have to have enough nodes to be able to say when someone is wrong, you know, and a lot of you know for for small companies let's say who want to start this or like let's say they have you know one computer that's doing this so they have two computers on on the blockchain or two nodes that they're using, it's a little easier to compromise two things. It's you know absolutely harder you know than compromising just one, but you have to have people buy into the you know the the system or you know, become nodes on, on this network to have the system work. But I think, you know, voting is something that we've talked about in the past. Like it's, it's been casually brought up in the podcast before. It's like, Hey, wouldn't it be great if we could online vote? Like that would be awesome. And then how would we do that? And there's a bunch of security implications, but the blockchain is like, Hey, you know, like we can do this. You guys just have to, you know, figure out the system for getting people to, to, to do this, but we'll keep track of, you know, all the votes and we'll make sure it's accurate and we'll make sure that there is ownership and that if someone tries to tamper with something, we'll be able to call it out. Right. So like you said, being a source of truth that's decentralized has a lot of applications. And I think most importantly, voting is is definitely on the top of the list, right? Currency, voting, you know, anything that requires a contract, like you said, and illegal like laws, you know, imagine, you know, writing a law into something on a ledger, right? So like, hey, this, you know, bill is now signed into law and now it's on a blockchain. And that is how everyone knows that this is actually a law. Yeah, absolutely. I agree 100% on that. 
I mean, I think the implications in voting are are probably the most interesting to me, uh, second to you know just cryptocurrency itself. Um, the the idea of cloud storage is also kind of interesting because I I don't prescribe that I I understand at all how you know some of these big companies that we use uh, you know have databases and they I'm sure they have to mirror them around the world as backups and. And, um, you know, it's probably hard. There's lots of software behind that that's making all that happen. But if they could make several nodes that were the, you know, backup of, you know, say, uh, Google Drive or iCloud or any of these things like that, um, using something like the blockchain, one, I think, you know, better customer experience because the nodes are closer to your people. And so the, the connections are faster. And two... Uh, you know, everything is verified and there's no conflict, you know, resolution. There's no like opening up something and it being like, hey, I sense that there are two of these. One's at this time and the other's at this time. Which one do you want to do? You know, that, that you know, terrible experience is, is now gone, which is, I think, you know, kind of a, a dream world we all want to live in. Cool, guys. So um, I, know, I know we've kind of gone through a bunch of these uh, that we had kind of listed off uh, in the blockchain, uh, you know, section here, but um, one, I, I, I have no clue what this is about, but uh, Adam, uh, crypto kitties. Oh man. Yeah. Crypto kitties. So this isn't necessarily a new thing, but it kind of gained some steam in the, in the media recently, but it, it's basically, do you remember Tamagotchis when you were, you know, like younger? Right, you have this little pet animal, right, and you'd feed it and all this other stuff. Yeah, and you had your tamagotchi, and you you know share with other friends like, oh look, I got this tamagotchi, it's great, right? Or if you think of you know like Magic the Gathering and trading you know different Magic cards or Pokemon cards, what what have you? This is essentially a very creative use of of the blockchain, but it's it. I, I want to call it a game, but it's a game where you have cats, and they're called Crypto Kitties because they're cryptographically you know placed on on the blockchain, so. Rather than, you know, currency, you have cats and you can, you know, breed two cats and the offspring of that cat will have certain like characteristics. So in the ledger, it says you have this cat and this cat has these traits. It's, you know, cute. It's furry. It has, you know, big eyes, whatever it is. And you can trade these cats with other people. It's almost their form of currency. So Crypto Kitties, uh, just looking at the website, it's it says start meow. And it's pretty cool. Like they have these rare kitties that they'll give you too. So it's it's almost like having a game done with the blockchain and like like Darren mentioned, like, hey, logging into Xbox Live, you know, like why is my account, you know, been deleted? Whatever it is. Oh well Xbox Live got hacked. Like, no, 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 your crypto kitties are always there because they're verified, you know, by all these nodes on the chain. Yeah, it you know, it, it's a uh that's another use for the blockchain too, is you know, games like these where you could say, Hey, I have this uh blue cat with a mustache or, you know, whatever the hell. Uh, kind of crypto kitty you have and it's a way to kind of like double check to make sure you don't have like a fraudulent car uh kitty uh it kind of reminds me of back in the day with like pokemon cards or Yu-Gi-Oh cards there could be counterfeit cards out there and there's not really a system to check where you have a fraudulent card or not you know you kind of have to like go off based on what you said it is like you say it's legit but in reality you made it you printed it out at your printer you just made it really convincing this blockchain system of having a crypto kitty helps kind of put everyone in check. You know, if you have that crypto kitty, you have that crypto kitty. It's not fraudulent. It's not BS. You know, you 
spent oh god i don't even know how much they're worth but they're probably worth like a ridiculous amount just because just like anything in nowadays with like all these microtransactions and whatnot but you spent thousands of dollars on this crypto kitty and you want to make sure that everyone knows that it's legit you can through the blockchain system you know every every computer has or every node has checked to make sure that your thousand dollar crypto kitty is legit Yep, it's like your super rare kitty is like, okay, prove to me it's super rare. It's like, I need to see the certificate of authenticity issued by, you know, the American Kitty Association for Crypto Kitties to make sure that it was a true bloodline, you know, relative of this kitty that it says it was. And all of that is tracked on this ledger. And like you said, it, there's a central source of truth. So it's, it's, you can't fake that you don't have this kitty. So. Yeah, exactly. Like if I have a, uh, let's say a golden retriever and I say it's a purebred and I show you the pedigree. What if I just went to trustworthy purebredpedigrees.com and printed one out? You know, that kind of prevents that from happening. You, you know, the Crypto Kitties pedigree uh, ascends from a long line of uh, royal cats. And, you know, the blockchain's there to verify that what you say it is, it uh, is true. Yep. Just add that to the list of use cases as pedigrees for animals. <laughs> so here's a, here's a little fun fact about Adam is uh, I used to, I was in 4-H because I kind of grew up um, on a farm. So we raised, you know, anything from like goats to chickens to pigs to um, steers to, I think I mentioned all of them. I think we're good. But um, our goats that we had, they were dairy goats and they had to be, and they were certified dairy goats from the American Dairy Goat Association. So A-D-G-A. And essentially when we bought the goats, we had a certificate saying like, this is the mom and this is the dad. And, you know, it had like the whole lineage of these goats. So very much like a pedigree. So imagine having all of that. Like you said, I could go Xerox that somewhere and it's got a little seal on it, but maybe I can fake that seal. And then I can say that this goat is like an awesome goat. And it's had this great royal lineage of goats. And in reality, it's just some trash goat I got, you know, from a, from a junkyard. <laughs> so it, it's really interesting to see like this crypto kitty thing, you know, it makes sense, right? Like, yeah, these crypto kitties have a pedigree and what better way to store that pedigree and make sure that it's authentic than putting it on the blockchain where everyone is responsible for making sure that these kitties are who they say they are. Yeah. And you know what? I was kind of thinking of this as we were talking about the crypto kitties is, you know, uh, I don't know if you guys know or remember um, where you could like buy a asteroid or comet or whatever from NASA and they give you a little certification saying it's your comet. How do how do they check to make sure that that comet in the sky is what you you know? I I can't go up to, if me and my friends are out at night and I look up in the sky and say, hey, you know what? That, that comet's actually named after me. It's Darren's comet. You know, here's the uh, certificate from NASA saying that it is. Like, how how do you prove that? You know, or there's hundreds of thousands of ash uh, millions maybe of like asteroids or comets, and how how do you know that one is yours? And that, how do you prove that? If anyone can buy a certificate that says that that asteroid is yours how do you how do you authenticate that you know uh, i know that's kind of a trivial thing but it, it, it is one possibility of using a blockchain for it. it's essentially a database that's a uh, verifying everything yeah i mean everything we talk about just boils down to the same thing right it's like hey you need to have a ledger and you need to be able to prove that you own something or you this transaction did occur then that's what the blockchain is for so it really boils down to that right like Every use case you can think of, if it requires a ledger, then the blockchain has a you know has a, a solution for it. Adam, I, I have to just give you a little like a slow clap for the uh, junkyard trash goats. I, I I didn't know those were a thing, so I'm I'm happy they're in my life now. 
Haven't you ever seen like in like old timey cartoons, right? That the, the goats are always eating like cans or something like that. No, come on, Adam. You, you should know this okay. about me. Darren, you, you can align with me on that, right? Like you've seen in cartoons where there's a goat and it's somehow eating like a, a metal, like can an empty can. Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, <laughs> I, you know, it's just, you're kind of scaring me because I feel like if I'm going to buy a goat out there in the world. I, I feel like I'm going to get ripped off. I don't know if it's going to be a legit purebred goat or not. Uh, how, how do I know? Well, you, you definitely go through a, a reputable source, which is me. Like if you need goats, I got you covered. Awesome. I will definitely hit you up on that because I'm definitely looking into a goat in the near future, a goat purchase. So I will need your expertise on that. All kidding aside, and you know, it's funny because baby goats are called kids and when they're giving birth, it's actually called kidding. So all kidding aside, ha ha ha, slow clap there. Uh, goats are actually really cool animals. Like they're really docile. Like we, we raise our goats from like babies essentially. So like I remember being like 10, right? And we were bottle feeding goats and these goats are just so happy to be alive and they jump around and you can get, some, get ones with floppy ears, get one with ears that stand up, get ones with no ears at all that their face looks kind of like a butt. Uh, they're, they're just great. Like I have tons of good memories of like, of goats and like, they were like pets, you know, and we, we use them for, for dairy. So, right. So we would, we would breed them and then we'd use like goat's milk to make, you know, cinnamon rolls or soap or all sorts of stuff. Um, so goats, goats are great pets. Like I've, I've talked to, to my wife about this and, you know, we've talked about like, Hey, you know, when we have enough space, we're definitely going to get some goats. Like, because they were great. Like, we loved having the goats. The kids love having the goats. Like, they're, you know, they're not loud. They're, they kind of, you know, clean up after themselves. They're, they're browsers, not grazers, right? So you get cows and cows will just like kind of mow down a field. They'll just kind of move like, they'll just eat like an entire section of grass until it's gone. But goats are kind of like browsers. So they'll take a little bit here and they'll go over to another location, take a little bit from there and they'll eat a little bit over here. So they're really good for like weed abatement because you can just put them somewhere and they won't like just tear down like one section. They'll kind of go all over the place and like keep keep the weeds down. So man, goats are goats are great animals. So I think we should have crypto goats. Okay, man, there's the million dollar idea is like crypto kitties. Like the next thing is crypto goats or crypto kids, I guess is what you could call them because they'd have to be <laughs> kind of baby goats. Cool. Well, I'm glad we got our million dollar idea. So anyway, uh, moving on. So there's the, the next section in the outline here is, is forks. And, uh, you know, Darren and I were talking uh, a little bit earlier this week about uh, this episode. And, and Darren, I think you did a pretty good job of, of summarizing forks for me because I didn't really know a whole lot about it. So do you mind kind of rehashing that? Uh, yeah. So there's a lot of Bitcoin forks that uh, happen. And I think there's actually one coming out pretty soon, if I'm not mistaken. But, um, you know, the the blockchain gets so ridiculously long. Uh, not to say that it's an issue, but, you know, what if there's a new kind of, let's say we established a blockchain 10 years ago, right? And 10 years down the road, there's a new set of rules or new set of technology or something that, you know, we need to change the way that the blockchain works, right? And what the way we can do that is fork it, where uh, we have a, you still have your pre-existing blockchain, and that's still going, but you have a whole new fork that does like a new rule set or a new, uh, a new w- whatever it could be. I mean, it doesn't have to be a rule set or a, uh, 
saying it could be whatever you want it to be you could fork it out um i think the reason why bitcoin forked though is that that there was so many complex uh rules that some people weren't agreeing with like current some bitcoin miners weren't agreeing with so they kind of decided to make their own fork and you see like bitcoin cash or bitcoin gold and I, I don't know what the hell the new one is coming out, but it's probably going to be something along those lines, like maybe Super Bitcoin. I don't know. But uh, point being is that let's say that these miners are, um, they don't agree with the current rule set of Bitcoin, right? And they want to make their own Bitcoin uh, that have their own following rules. So they'll fork off and it is somewhat related to the current blockchain where if you're looking at the blockchain in a chronological order, you're seeing the very beginning of Bitcoin to the point where it forks off, and then you're going to see like a uh, a left road and a right road. The left road is the current Bitcoin still following the same rule sets, the same uh, programming, whatever you want to call it. And then this right road is a whole new set that's it's like a cousin of the current blockchain. It's its own kind of lineage where it's saying, for example, maybe there's a transaction fee with current Bitcoin where it's 10 cents. And you want to change it to, you don't agree with that personally. And you and all these miners say, you know what? Fuck you, Bitcoin. Let's do our own uh, fork. And you're doing two cents now. So now you're kind of keeping your own personal ledger or a new ledger that does these two cent transactions that aren't interfering with the current uh, blockchain itself. So this brings up uh, kind of two questions for me. One, uh, is it possible to fork Bitcoin to essentially create a new? number of coins because we we know we're going to run out so if we forked it and said hey you know now it's you know one trillion bitcoins um would that be possible and two how does this affect the value of the coin itself i mean we obviously know that the cryptocurrency itself has some sort of value we assign to it that is um you know relatable to say us dollars or pounds or, or or anything um how does that affect the value does does that fork start with the current value at the time of the split, I assume? Uh, yeah, so what I was talking about was what's called a hard fork. And it, a hard fork is something that's not uh, backwards compatible, so to speak. If you're going to do a hard fork, you're not going back to the original form. So, for example, for Bitcoin, if you're hard forking into uh, Bitcoin Cash... You can't, that's not interchangeable with current Bitcoin. You know, I can't give you one Bitcoin cash. And it's not going to be worth the same as a regular original Bitcoin is. Um, and it's, the value of it does depend. So when Bitcoin will fork, I'm assuming the value will go down because now you're having another set of options. You know, it's kind of like saying, uh, let's say a country and you have a colony, right? Uh the United States and Great Britain, for example, we forked off. We were part of Great Britain, but we decided to form our own country. Now that we're our own country, we're not following the laws of Great Britain anymore. We're following our own thing. And uh, they're not going to be related to one another in the sense that, hey, whatever laws that we form here in the United States are going to fall over to our original uh, country, Great Britain. They're distinct and they're separate from one another, but they do have a lineage that kind of tied back to the original country, which was Great Britain. Um, I don't know. I don't know if that was a good analogy. I was kind of thinking of that on the fly, but let me know if that makes sense or not. I, I think I, I, I get the idea, you know, and, uh, you know, I, obviously the, the concept is, is hard, but I, but I get the, the idea of the analogy itself. So, um, Adam, do you have any questions on forks or any uh, input there? 
So the way to think of forks is if you've ever done source management, you, you know when you make a branch, right? And then you, you end up doing all your commits down there. And let's just say like the fork, you're just following along that branch, right? Where you have the ledger up until that point, but now you've started something totally different. And whatever you do on there, it kind of continues on. So when, when you're talking about that ledger, like, like Terrence said, the hard fork is, hey, this is something totally different, right? And we're now verifying this. Um, but the, the blockchain has, has not hard forks in the sense where, let's say, you know, two things start trying to verify a transaction at the same time and they're competing for this, right? And then one says it's this, the other says that, this little fork off and we'll kind of do some other complex math, which is all listed in the tech specs for, for how the blockchain works. But when you talk about a hard fork, like you're now doing something totally different. So I, I sent an article in Skype. So if you can figure out how to find the chat in Skype, then you can find it. But it's on Forbes and it kind of gives like an idea of what happens or what happened when when Bitcoin did its fork and how the reason they forked was because the argument was that, hey, like blocks right now are one megabyte in size. We want them to be two, right? We want them to have more information that we can store on a block. So when when they split, right, you have now 2x, you know, tokens, and then you have your original Bitcoin. So the values are different. So it looks like in the Forbes article, they're mentioning the, the 2x tokens were about 15% of the current value of Bitcoin when the fork happened. Interesting. So it, it kind of goes back to instead of having a universal currency, you know, you've got the the currency itself will be accepted everywhere around the world, possibly. Uh, but the currency values are different, uh, even though they are they all are a cryptocurrency of their own. Well, that's why there's a lot of argument in like, well, why are we why are we forking, you know, the blockchain for Bitcoin? Like, why are we, why are we doing this? Right. It's like, yeah, we need to store more information. but there are people who are like Bitcoin purists, right? Say, Hey, like this idea when we made it is what we have. We're going to stick with it. You know, we're going to work with what we have. And there are other people who's like, we need to evolve. We need to change. We need to, you know, have something, something different because if we want to store more information, we have to do this, right? This is a limitation that the only way for us to overcome it is if we fork it. So there was a lot of, you know, back and forth between these two sides on if, you know, they were actually going to do the fork. And I know there were a bunch of hangups and it got delayed. It was supposed to happen at one time. It got delayed again. So. I think there's a lot of like contention between that, but yeah, the dream of a, an international currency, let's just say like, Hey, we, you know, deal with Bitcoin <laughs> and that's all that everyone has is Bitcoin. If someone forks it, right. Then they can try to start their own competing currency. And I guess that's where you have like the same kind of, you know, problem. But if it's an open, you know, decentralized system, the chances for that are going to be rare in the, in the sense that you're not going to have one person overthrowing a collective. Yeah. And you know, I could right now take, say, you know what, screw the dollar. I want to make my own currency, and we'll call it Fun Bucks. Uh, you know, you're gonna have, you're gonna need other people to agree with you for Fun Bucks to be worth something. So if one miner says, screw it, let's make our own fork, and no one else agrees with them, that thing's not gonna be worth very much. Versus something like uh, Bitcoin Cash, which you know, there's a very, there, there's a group of people that agree with it, so it's it's worth something, and it does have some value because people do value that fork to a certain extent um, versus something like fun bucks, you know, I'm the only one that wants to make it something and no one else want, really wants to really wants my fun bucks. So it's going to be worth nothing. Yeah. And, and the one thing we haven't touched on, you know, which you, you kind of just jog my memory on is like inflation, right? When we talk about like the government printing more money, you know, just to have more money, 
then you get in, like into inflation, hyperinflation, and we've seen what that that's done to economies. So we mentioned that Bitcoin kind of has like that ceiling, right? That that hard ceiling, and that prevents you know Bitcoin itself from becoming you know a victim of inflation. So like you said, your fun bucks may not be worth anything there, but a Bitcoin is always worth a Bitcoin and will always be worth a Bitcoin. Whether that exchanges to different currencies is a different story, but when you're dealing with Bitcoin, it's always still a Bitcoin. But yeah, like you said, people have to agree with you. People have to get on board and people have to recognize this as a currency. And, you know, that gets into a bunch of things. And we haven't even talked about like some of the bad uses for for Bitcoin, which I wanted to stay away from just because, you know, there's a lot of baggage that goes along with that. But I, I think, you know, we mentioned if you do a fork, you have to have buy-in on that. Just like there's no way to to overthrow this system, right? There, there's no way to take control of it. You can fork it and do your own thing, fine, but you can't spoof all these other, you know, computers on the chain to say like, hey, you know what? This is now fun bucks are now worth, you know, five million Bitcoin, whatever it is. It's just, it doesn't work that way. So, all right. So let's let's move on to uh, fees, and I mean, this is something we kind of mentioned briefly, but I'm kind of curious if you guys want to dive a little more into this and, um. Yeah, I guess my my first question is, you know, what what are the fees that are associated with this, and how do they do they scale? Do they scale with you know um, I'm making a large transaction, and therefore there is a a larger fee? Um, is it a percentage, in other words, um, or what if I'm doing something like a contract? Do I uh, do I pay to have that contract? Um, do I pay to have a wallet open like I would a bank account? What, what does that look like? Yeah, so I mean if we're talking about like Bitcoin itself, there is a fee for Bitcoin. It's a it's a fairly small percentage. Or actually I'm sorry, it's not even a percentage. I think it's a flat rate. It's a very small flat rate. And uh this flat rate is more of an incentive for miners. So um when someone makes a transaction on the blockchain and there is a transaction fee for Bitcoin where they skim a little bit off the top and they spread that, they distribute the wealth to all the miners. Uh, to kind of as an incentive to make the network secure, to have all these miners out there. So, and, and that is kind of a drawback to, I guess you could say, to Bitcoin is that, you know, some people don't like to have the transaction fee. That's kind of, it kind of defeats the purpose of cryptocurrency in a way where, let's say, if you're using a, a credit card uh, and you're swiping your card at a retailer, that retailer is paying a very small percentage, that transaction fee for like Visa or Discover or whoever uh, to process that transaction. It's a, it's a similar idea, but with Bitcoin. And, you know, there are alternatives out there that try to like eliminate that. But it, it's more so of an incentive for Bitcoin miners to keep mining. Well, you know, that that definitely makes sense. Obviously, there's got to be a little skin in the game for them. And uh, the one thing I can say is I, I have definitely noticed this. Um, I I think it'd be wise to say that, you know, I, I have a little bit of Bitcoin myself, not a whole lot uh, at all. Um, in the grand scheme of it, it's, it's minuscule. Um, Darren, I think you have a couple uh, different cryptocurrencies. Is that correct? Yeah, I actually, I don't personally have money into Bitcoin myself. It is super volatile to like uh, consider myself being an investor in it. Now, I do invest a small amount of money into alternative coins. One of them for is called IOTA. And it's a, uh, it's a cryptocurrency that is, um, that's supposed to eliminate the uh, transaction fees. 
And it's supposed to utilize the Internet of Things and have the Internet of Things communicate uh, with one another to make to form a blockchain. And, and, you know, that's something that would be a whole episode worth. Uh, we could go on and on and on about different cryptocurrencies. Uh, but there are alternative coins out there that do exist that, uh, I mean, essentially, if you want to think of them, they're, oh, they're a fork in the sense that it's not part of the original blockchain. It's like forming a whole new blockchain itself entirely. Uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's a whole new origin, I guess you could say, an origin story. We, we've mentioned the blockchain, and we, and we keep talking, you know, kind of like Bitcoin and blockchain, right? Is They're two totally different things. Bitcoin is its own thing. It just uses the blockchain to facilitate that. So in the same sense, right, we're not forking, you know, Bitcoin to make these other coins. These are just other implementations of the blockchain. It's like a whole separate blockchain just for this currency. Right. Whereas a fork of Bitcoin would be like, hey, you know, this is the implementation of blockchain for Bitcoin and we are forking it, meaning we are going over into a different section. But this is still, quote unquote, like Bitcoin. Right? It's still relating to the original chain, the original blockchain. But yeah, like anyone can spin up a currency, you know, by like, OK, well, now we have our own blockchain and it's got three nodes on it. And, you know, now we're trading and we're doing our own thing on this currency. But unless you have people buy into it, it's not worth anything. Um, I think I want to go back to the fees just really quick, because when we talk about fees, like there are the built in, you know, transaction fees, let's say for the currency itself, but you have to watch out for exchanges because there's a lot of people out there, you know, who will do the trading for you and the exchanges, those are where they, they have to make money too. So they'll take a portion of whatever it is that you're putting in there and they might take, you know, a a fraction of a coin on, on something or to put money in or take money out, whatever it is. And just like we have exchanges now, right? Like, Hey, you want to put your money in? cool, you got to give us some money because, you know, we're doing all this, this heavy lifting for you. You want to invest in like these, these mutual funds or the stock market. Great. You know, like as you get money, like we're going to take a percentage of that. Right. Or as you put in money, we're going to take a percentage with whatever it is. Right. So that's the thing to watch out for too. Like be mindful of the fees that when you're going through another party, right, that party has kind of control over their fee structure. And I know Jim, he's not here, so he can't defend himself. So I'm going to, you know, call him out on something. So he sent something in our, in our, just our like regular chat where it was like, Hey, you know, there was a heist recently for Bitcoin. And you know, the article is very clickbaity where it's like Bitcoin heist steals, you know, two twelve million $12 And then it's like, okay, well, how is that even possible? So you look at it and it's not even that Bitcoin heist happened. It was that there was an exchanger on Bitcoin where they got, you know, compromised and basically all of the wallets and all the stuff that they had every, everything that they had that identified people and their wallets on the, on the blockchain that was compromised. So basically they were like, Hey, you know what? We're just going to transfer all this money to us. And since they had all the information, they basically submitted this transaction knowing all the information because it was stored on this exchange in an unsecure way. So we talk about this decentralized system. Yes. The concept itself is decentralized, but if you go through a central, you know, company to facilitate your transactions, there's your attack surface. So as Bitcoin becomes more and more, you know, lucrative or more, like we said, you know, it's $16,000 for one Bitcoin. It's like, wow, if there's people out there with a wallet with two Bitcoins in it, that's a lot of money. So as you go through these exchanges, just be mindful that if you're going through a person, like make sure they have their security up to snuff because they are the ones who will be attacked. Not, not the chain. We we've already tried that, right? Like it's not worth it because the attack surface is so large, but now we're refocusing onto these exchanges because, well, they're the ones who hold the keys. 
Yeah, that's actually a really good point. I'm glad you brought that up because it is something that is a uh, concern. Um, obviously, like you said, the blockchain itself isn't a uh, point of attack for fraud. Uh, it's the middleman. So just like um, if you went to, uh, I don't know, uh, Target or Home Depot, uh, they're the ones facilitating the transaction. So they have a record of you know, your card number or your social security number for a credit card application or whatever. And, you know, you're trying to get from point A to point B, but there's actually like a, uh, there's like a pit stop. And that pit stop is what people are exploiting to get, you know, the, the Bitcoin, the 12 million Bitcoin or however large the amount is. Uh, it's just, you got to be very mindful of where you're uh, transacting these Bitcoins and how you're storing currency. Uh, there are ways of, um, storing it by not using a middleman uh, where you can uh, just like you can with dollars or fiat currency where you can you know actually have them a tangible uh, you know dollar bills you can also have a uh, a wallet which is like a little USB drive looking thing that stores these uh, like the unique identifiers of each of your currency on this like flash drive so you're the one that physically has a tangible copy of your bitcoins Versus, you know, storing it on a uh, exchange uh, that might have their own wallet. That's still exploitable. So if someone is able to get into that so-called secured website, they can steal all your money if you just if you just leave it on the exchange. Yeah, and it's it's one thing we we didn't really mention, right? But the the creditors like they got hacked too, right? And that's a bunch of your personal information out there. Um, so yeah, like like you mentioned, these exchanges or this these middlemen, those are now the attack points. And those are the ones who are most vulnerable because if they don't keep their stuff up to, you know, their security up to snuff, then you're going to be in trouble. But what's really funny about the blockchain is you can see all of this happen, right? So you see, okay, well, looks like, you know, someone, you know, transferred all this money because it's a public ledger. Anyone can view like the amounts being transferred. So they can see that there was a transaction from, you know, this wallet to this wallet in the amount of however many Bitcoin, that's pretty close to the amount that was you know, reported as heisted or stolen. So they can see that and they can see that's on the ledger and it's there, right? But tracing it back to a person because of the way they anonymize things and the way you have to access things, you, you may not know where or when that, that is going to be claimed or transferred to a different wallet or what, what have you. But when that wallet is accessed, that's what people are looking at now. So now you get into things of, you know, tracking people on the internet, which also we could probably talk a, a whole nother show about, but it's funny how this heist happens and it's public, like everyone knows about it and it's on the ledgers like, hey, this actually happened. And now all these computers have verified and legitimized like, yep, this totally happened. And now all this money is in this wallet and that is legit. Yeah, I think, you know, it kind of draws a lot of parallels to the physical world we live in where we have, I mean, you could you know, take the grandma analogy of like, hey, let's put the, the physical dollar bills under the mattress. And, you know, we we all know we kind of live in a digital world today and we don't really deal with a lot of uh, our actual money. We have, you know, debit cards and, and accounts that, you know, it just kind of passes out of and it's just math, you know, subtraction out of our account or addition into it. And, um, you know, if, if we give up our uh, banking credentials because we're not very secure with them, well, then someone could you know, just transfer all that money out. And that kind of, to me, draws a lot of parallels to the wallet analogy that, you know, it, at the end of the day, it really does come down to us protecting our own you know stuff and, and not letting 
any middlemen in that we don't trust. You know, at the end of the day, uh, that is our responsibility and, and something that, you know, we have to take on our own. But I, I do want to uh, bring up the, we, we kind of dabbled into it, the, the idea of alternate coins. And so, you know, I think the two well-known ones, at least that I had heard of before we even thought of this episode was uh, Ethereum and, and Litecoin. But uh, Darren, I know you mentioned one you're using, and and there's there's many 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 more out there. But I'm I'm curious, um, what is your guys' knowledge on this? And uh, I mean, any advantages that you know of for these uh, particular coins? Yeah, you know, um, these alt altcoins. Uh, there's hundreds of them out there, and they all have their own different purposes. Whether it's a meme, like I'm sure you've heard of Dogecoin at one point. Where when the Doge meme was around, it was an actual currency based on that. Um, Hell yeah, yeah. See, there you go, my man. I know you invested in that. Uh, but it's a uh, and there's other ones too. Like the one that I invested in is called IOTA, and it's something I believe in too. So the concept behind IOTA in a nutshell is that it uh, it utilizes the Internet of Things. It's one of the first currencies to kind of target Internet of Things. So kind of like how the blockchain works, where you know all of these devices are communicating with one another. The thing, the idea behind IOTA is that your Internet of Things are all communicating with one another, and um, you know they're all sharing information, right? If you have a smart thermometer, it's share, it's telling you the temperature, right? Uh, and some corporations might want to use that information, and, and it might be uh, valuable to the corporation. You know, right now, if we, if I sold you the temperature of my thermometer to you, it's probably worth nothing, right? Um, how, how do we how do we monetize nothing uh, to a point where something such a piece of information that's so small that's a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a penny? Um, that's the idea behind IOTA is that that fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a penny is actually worth something, and that can be worth one IOTA. It can be worth a mega IOTA, which is I believe a uh, a million iota something along those lines i'm not too sure um but that, that, i mean that's one of many i know there's another one out there too called monero which is a completely completely anonymous uh transaction system where there's no transaction fees uh the ledger doesn't show what address it came from it just says hey there was a transaction on here and it was done at this time uh nothing else so on so forth and there's even ones that are made by corporations such as ripple um, which I believe it was JP Morgan, I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but one of these banks, um, made a cryptocurrency and they're kind of going all in and, uh, it, it's more of like a digital payment system where, uh, you know, right now Bitcoin's more of a, uh, store of value. It's, it's how much we say it was, right? You know, Bitcoin's now worth, uh, $15,000 because we say it's worth $15,000. That's how much we value it. Uh, Ripple is like a payment transaction protocol where it's kind of like it's peer-to-peer. So if I'm giving you $100, if we transform it into Ripple, it's a transaction system that can transfer it to, um, you know, another person. It kind of eliminates the middleman. Uh, You know, that's uh, those are one of many cryptocurrencies, and they all have their own different uh, ideas or features that they have. And some of them are actually completely fraudulent where uh, the developer of the coin might have a good idea and then they, you know, uh, they completely give up on it down the road. And it's a, it's a wild west out there. You know, uh, the values of these coins fluctuate. They're incredibly volatile. It's essentially gambling 
you know, the one that I invested in IOTA was worth a dollar fifty when I put money into it. Now it's worth almost five dollars. So I got more than um, you know, three times my money back just from the value of it. But it, it, it jumped down the other day down to two dollars and fifty cents and it went back up to uh five dollars. Uh the, the value can change at any moment and it, it's all it's all based on what people believe in, you know. It's only worth as much as what people believe in it. So if not a lot of people are going into IOTA or going into even Ethereum or Litecoin, then it's not going to be worth much. I know Litecoin recently is actually almost doubled. I think I hit $200 the other day. Uh, and that's because people believed in it, you know? Yeah, and, and that's one thing to point out too, right? Is like you can spin up all of these all of these currencies and they're only worth what people will say they're worth because you, you put money in, right? And you put money in and you got your coins and those coins are worth whatever. But when, as long as we're dealing with multiple currencies, there's always going to be this this form of exchange and this this disparity between them, right? Like, hey, one one iota coin, right, or or mega coin, it's is only worth what it is on that on that that system. But to anything else, it's worth whatever people say it is, right? So the whole concept is very is very interesting. It, in, unless you got a universal buy in, it would never replace anything that you already have. Um, I, I'm curious to see like this uh, IOTA one, right? Because you talk about free compute cycles and you know systems out there, right? Internet of Things devices are always you know on, always plugged into power, and always on the internet for the most part. So that would make sense, right? Hey, you have all these free compute cycles. Like, how can we use these for whatever? It's like, well, if these guys are all participating as nodes on the blockchain, wow, that's amazing, right? Then. You, you have a, a universal ledger that's controlled by things that just are in a household and all over the place. So I think that's really interesting. And one thing to point out is the, the Monero coin, the, the fully anonymous one, is it's come under a little bit of fire lately because CoinHive, and we talked about this in a previous episode, was the, the company who was providing an API, a JavaScript, that would use idle cores of a CPU uh, when you went to like a web page that would mine this Monero coin. So with it being fully anonymous and, you know, like we, we mentioned the incentive for miners, right? So going to a site and using your computer to mine this currency where you don't see any of the proceeds, but CoinHive sees all of them, right? Is uh, it's just something. So like connecting the dots between our episodes, we talked about, you know, crypto jacking and, uh, you know, sites like the, what was it? The Pirate Bay, you know, experimenting with uh, using idle cores of CPUs to mine a currency and the Monero coin. This is the first time we've mentioned it. So now we've kind of connected all those dots. I just wanted to bring that up. Yeah, thanks for, you know, I, I think it's good that we kind of, it's a little bit of follow up uh, real time, I guess. But, um, you know, I guess this kind of begs the question. So I think we've done a pretty good job of summarizing the blockchain and and, you know, kind of all its, you know, glory, but uh, where where does the blockchain really go from here? So I'm kind of curious what your guys' thoughts are, both, uh, you know, in the short term, in the next couple of years, and, and really, you know, where you see it maybe 10 years from now. So what are your guys' thoughts? You know, it's, right now it's the Wild West. Uh, it can go anywhere. It can go in any direction. It could completely fall apart. The Bitcoin bubble could pop, and it could be worth nothing. Um, you know, it turns out that this idea sucks or it could be really effective and we might see governments start to implement it in one way or another. Uh, I know Craigslist the other day uh, actually uh, put in a system where like you could put a uh, check mark, hey, I accept Bitcoin tra- or I'm sorry, cryptocurrency transactions. 
So I, I think the world is becoming more aware of cryptocurrency. Uh, the other day, my buddy in one of my group chats uh, messaged me, hey, I invested money into Bitcoin. Like, uh, what do you think is going to happen to it? I have no idea. I mean, my guess is as good as you guys. I'm not an authority on it, and I probably will never be one. But um, it's there, there's no way. It's such a new concept that I don't think we'll see the outcome or be able to predict the outcome for a very, very long time. Um, it's something that can go up or down. It can be a very beneficial thing, or it could be something that could fade into existence. Uh, it, there, we don't know where we're going with this, and it, it's actually really interesting to, to know that. Um, there might be a better system that comes out that completely eliminates the blockchain, and it, it, you know, Bitcoin could be a thing of the past too, or it could be the golden standard, and you know, we all start using Bitcoin and never use any other alternative currency, and there's no point of using them. It, it you know, there's it can go in any one of many directions. Yeah, so in the choose-your-own-adventure game of, you know, always deciding what the, what the future of something will be, right, is you can always go one of two ways or one of eight ways or one of ten w- different ways. But like, like Darren mentioned, today, today things move fast. There's always something different. It's definitely the Wild West when we come to, like, cryptocurrencies because it is so new and they're trying to find ways to kind of curb that, uh, that kind of wild feel. But what's interesting is, the concept of the blockchain itself, it's a big disruptor in, in the markets because you have the concept of a notarized ledger, which has been embroidered in our systems for forever, right? You have entire businesses and, you know, foundations that are built upon this premise of having, you know, a ledger that can be verified at any time, right? A decentralized system. And that concept is, is very, very far reaching. And because of that is one of the reasons why things are so scary, right? It's like, well, if this leads to this, it can lead to that. And you get into slippery slope arguments, right? But I think the fact that the the concept is so disruptive makes it scary for a lot of people, meaning that it has the potential to change the entire way that we live, the entire way that we process information, the entire way we store information. But to get there, it's scary. Like, no one wants to jump off into that pool yet because... You don't know what's going to happen, like like Darren mentioned. So, what I find interesting is, and, and we I know we don't try to get too political in the podcast, but we end up you know always talking about politics somehow. Is like the legislation aspect of it, right? Is when you talk about hey, you need a license to use you know this on or to be a, an exchange exchanger of this currency or of this currency, right? And the documentary that that I, I threw in there kind of digs into this a little bit too, how there's legislation and they want to do this. And in a decentralized system, how can you have a central authority telling you how to use a decentralized system? Like, that doesn't make sense to me. So everyone knows the unknown is scary. So everyone's trying to put all of these things in place to where they can make it a safer environment. But what I, what I feel, and this is just my personal belief, is like we have to jump all in, right? There has to be basically a worldwide consensus that this is how we are going to do things. This is how we as a as a race basically move forward, right? So I'm going to talk like long-term future stuff, like hundreds of years into the future, because I think, you know, like every sci-fi movie, it's just going to take some alien, you know, attack that's going to need to band us all together or unite us all, take the Watchmen plot, take whatever you want, right? But we need some, well, we have all these squabbles between ourselves now, but we need something to unite us, something that we need to move towards a common goal together. And right now we don't have that. But once we do, I I've envisioned something like the blockchain or like that concept of a decentralized system taking hold. And 
as new markets emerge that maybe require something like the blockchain, I, I hope, and this is just like I said, my optimistic future is that they will implement this. And as more and more you know, emerging markets start using it, then it's going to become a standard for everybody. But who knows, maybe tomorrow, you know, there will be Bitcoin, you know, or the blockchain 2.0, which will be totally different and better and kind of, you know, solve all of the uh, the concerns that people have. But right now, this concept developed in 2008, or, you know, conceived in 2008, you know, written down in the paper, has gotten us really far and has opened a lot of doors. So I'd like to see us at least try to go down all of those hallways to see where they lead. Because right now, I think, you know, those doors are getting closed, you know, before they've had a chance to actually look inside. Yeah, I, I tend to agree, I think, with both of you uh, pretty well. I, I think the the short term, it, it is definitely the wild, wild west. I mean, uh, I told Darren about this the other day that, you know, I, I own a very tiny smidgen of Bitcoin. And the other morning, it, it like peaked at like over, I think, 18 or 19,000. And there was like so many people trying to like sell and get out and, you know, cash out while it was high. And like everything was crashing. Nobody could seem to like get into their wallets and actually get out. And and so, you know, it really is the wild, wild west. And I think it's down to like, I don't know, 14,000 now for one Bitcoin. So, I mean, significant drop and and day to day is just fluctuating all over the place. So, um, it, it's not to be trusted, I guess I would say at this point in time. Um, but the, the, the foundation is there. The blockchain itself is, is intact. And, and I think we've, we've definitely talked about it. It's, uh, it's got a lot of benefits. And I think in the long term, um, you know, when I think, you know, 25 or 50 years from now, I could see countries adopting this on a smaller scale first and, and just saying, you know, hey, we're going to use blockchain to manage all our currency. Um, go 100% digital that way, and and the currency will be managed uh, in an easier way and and kept track of. Um, you know, I, I could see that happening, uh, and then you know, hopefully, uh, as you said, Adam, you know, maybe hundreds of years from now, I, I think it's going to be a lot harder to get everybody to agree. But one common, you know, currency would be a really nice thing um, that you know that way th- there is no you know struggle with moving you know money across borders and. And so that would be really, really, really interesting to see. But um, I think the the foundation is there. It's laid and it's solid. So uh, I, I hope I'm I'm a little optimistic. Um, and uh, like Adam said, I, I think we should open these doors and see where they take us. But uh, I know that pretty well wraps up what we had in the outline. Do you guys have any other final thoughts? I know we kind of you know beat this hopefully to death pretty well. But any any other uh, final thoughts, guys? Uh, you know, I can ramble on and on and on, but uh, I'll save everyone the uh, the trouble. And uh, no, I'm good. Yeah, Lou's playing his uh, time police uh, role there pretty well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I gotta uh, keep us moving. Keep us moving. Um, so, well, that that pretty much wraps it up. Then um, I know one. I, I think Adam and I can say thank you, you know, wholeheartedly to Darren for like coming on the show. Um, it was a pleasure having you, of course, and. Uh, if you'd like, you're you're more than welcome to share, you know, any online uh, ways to find you, or if you'd like, you can stay anonymous. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me, guys. Um, I'll link some of my social media uh, in the outline or whatever you guys post on the website, and we'll go from there. Well, yeah, man. Thanks for uh, thanks for joining. It was a great conversation. Uh, tons of fun. Like I said, thank you for for being a fellow T Swift fan. 
and kind of going down that road with me, reminiscing about old Taylor, which is now definitely going in a playlist for tomorrow morning once I get up. So good stuff. Yeah, likewise. Um, you know, if you ever need someone to back you up on Taylor Swift or anything, let me know. And then, you know, when I become a trillionaire from my uh, crypto goats idea, I'll remember you guys. There you go. <laughs> so next podcast. So next week, after I say something about Taylor Swift and, you know, someone bags on me, I'm definitely calling you up. Got to use that crypto kids money, you know? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, and uh, of course, Jim will be back next week. Uh, we wish him the best of luck in his finals. And uh, Adam, I, I know you threw in something here at the end. Uh, you're really sticking to this yoga thing. What, what, what's going on with it? So, so yeah, I've, I've been doing yoga for, you know, let's say, I don't know, maybe three, four months now, I want to say. And it, it started out as just, you know, like the stretches and just kind of getting into poses, things like that. And I was like, all right, you know, I'm a beginner, like this makes sense. So the app that I use is, uh, is Pocket Yoga. And I've been doing just kind of like the beginner like routines, right? So just kind of going through, you know, moving from pose to pose, like focusing on breathing and stuff. And I was like, you know what, I've been doing the 30 minute exercises why don't I bump it up to 45? So I bump it up to 45 and lo and behold, they're like, all right, now start doing, you know, headstands and supported headstands. And, you know, I'm like, what the fuck is this shit? I'm like, I've never done this pose before. This is listed as a medium intermediate pose. I'm like, I don't know how to do this. (laughs) What? So I I put in here, the difficulty curve on this app is fucking bananas. Right. And I'm sure like if you've practiced the poses, which they assume that you do, then great. You can go through this. But, uh, I'm just dying of laughter over here because I just have this great image of you just like doing headstands in your living room or something. <laughs> yeah, well, and I was in I was in the bedroom and I was right next to like a heater that we have, you know, in the room because it gets kind of cold where we are. So uh, I was I was standing there and I see this and I have my headphones in like I have the workout going and it's like move into, you know, supported headstand. I'm like, what? Wait, 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 wait. And there's like, not really a way to pause. So I'm like, oh God, oh God. So I'm looking at this pose. I'm like, all right, well, let's try this. See how it goes. There's a heater right next to me I could fall on. Nothing could go wrong, right? Uh, Luckily, nothing did go wrong. And I definitely got halfway up to a a headstand. So I'm feeling pretty good about myself. But now I just know that I'm going to stick to the 30 minutes for a while until I have that like down, just, you know, rock solid and then i'll actually look at the uh, intermediate one and make sure i practice those poses to make sure that i'm good but what's the what's the name of the pose what it what the name of the pose that's a great question let me find out for you so talk amongst yourselves as i figure this out i know like uh uh so the the one that i've heard of that is like intensely hard before and kind of like i i am i'm 100 novice here but i uh crow's pose i don't know if you've ever that's done the that. one that's totally the one that I had to do. That was the first one they had me do. And then they had me do the headstand one. Oh my God. So yeah, crow's pose is like, like is pretty, pretty advanced. If you ask me, that thing is like, I tried to do it once. And like, this is from the noob that's like never done yoga, but like someone was like, Hey, I had to do this today. You should give it a try. And I was like, sure, let me jump down here and give this a whirl. And oh my God, it was a nightmare. So, so let me give you the description just to see how well this plays over audio because I'm staring at a picture, but it also has a description. It says, from an inverted position with the hips up and the head down, the arms are bent in a 90-degree angle with the knees resting on elbows. The palms are firmly rooted into the earth with knuckles pressed firmly into the earth for support. The belly is pulled up and in towards the spine with the ribcage and chin lifted. The weight of the body shifts slightly forward as the toes lift up and off the earth into full expression of the pose. 
it gazes down and slightly forward. So essentially, you're standing, you're balancing on your hands with your knees on your elbows. And yeah, I was like, uh, okay, this is much more difficult than I expected, but I was able to do it for a little bit of time. So now I just know I need to practice a little bit more, find my balance, and I'll be back on this yoga thing. So I'll follow up in like six months. I'll be like, oh, dude, I totally can do like headstands, you know, on my own. Like, that's the goal. I, I commend you, Adam. The, that That's like, that is full fucking bananas. Yeah. Well, I mean, like the curve, right? I mean, because before that, like they weren't having me doing this stuff. It's like, yeah, you know, downward facing dog, upward facing dog, like t- typical, like pretty easy yoga stretches. And now they're like, all right, now move into inverted. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. I haven't heard these things before. I should have looked at the uh, <laughs> the flow before I actually started the practice. But uh, Darren, do you do any yoga or anything like that? Uh, no, not at all. And uh, I don't think I'd be good at it at all. You know, I'm open to things. But yoga is something that I, you know, it's... I'm not, like, above it or anything. It's just, I think it's just too difficult for me. I'm not flexible. So, I'll I'll be honest. I I definitely thought the same thing. And the beginner yoga is actually very nice, right? Like, if you... Some of the apps out there are, are definitely suited for beginners. And honestly, like, the stretching was the biggest thing for me. Like, that was, I think, what I liked the most about it, was being able to stretch. Because yoga has you stretch in, like, very unique ways. And you're like, all right, if I contort my body this way, it's definitely stretching things that I probably never stretched before. So that's that's good. Uh, so I'd say just once in your life on your bucket list, like say, hey, I did sun salutations with yoga. Like, great, done. I'll definitely try it. Uh, I'm, like I said, I'm open to it. It's just I don't know where to start, really. Um, you said there's beginner apps. You might want to you link me some. I'll, I'll definitely try it out, and maybe I'll report back. I don't know. There you go. All right. I'll, I'll send you like the one that I used, which was on the TV. Uh, they also have an iOS version as well, but it was very focused just on like getting into a pose and holding that pose. And I'd say for beginners, at least like for me, that was the best thing is like, all right, I'm going into a pose and I'm just standing in that pose for 30 seconds, right? Working on balance, working on form, blah, blah, blah. And then now like I'm in the other app where now it has you like move between poses, right? There's a whole routine and, uh, it all kind of flows together, which is the whole kind of concept of that type of yoga. but good stuff but yeah man that the app that i have like just don't go to the 45 minutes unless you're really ready for it cool all right guys well uh thanks again for darren coming on the show and uh i guess we'll look forward to talking to you again next week thanks guys Yep, janky old looking. It's like Mac OS 10.6. It's got the like silver shadowed buttons. <laughs> well, it's oh. all graphite, right? Like it was, oh. it was before the uh the flat redesign. Yeah, yeah it's it's a little needs Brushed a little metal. facelift. Oh, it's just it's such a throwback. <laughs> I don't know, man. When shit just works, like you don't have to like try to fix it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, don't fix what isn't broke. Oh, no. It's the problem is that loot threw too much money on a problem. <laughs> Lou caused all the fires. Oh god. That's not a funny joke to make, but you know. If you're throwing actual like cash, you know, cash is flammable, so I'm assuming that's kinda why. 
we're having this fire now. Just spreading yep. and spreading and spreading. Lou saw some problem like holiday. He's like, hmm, do I need this? Maybe I do. So he threw like a dollar on it. He's like, hmm, maybe I need like eight of them because I, I might really like them. So, you know, I need to get eight of them for some reason because when the other one breaks, God, I want another one. So, and that just kind of spiraled down. 